your host for Lacrosse Talk PM, Rick Sola. All right, welcome to what day is it now? I'm doing two days, so I'm getting confused. It's Wednesday. It's and it's a hundred degrees out, so I'm I'm having trouble just even uh, walking around for from the parking lot to to the uh, building. But six zero eight seven eight five seven nine one four is the talk and text line. Marquette political science professor Dr. Philip Rocco is on the phone with me now from the other side of the state. How is it going, Philip? Hey, how are you, Rick? It's hot here too, <laughs> right? Yeah, we don't live all that far apart, so it's not—it's not like uh, I, I feel like maybe Indeed. it's just kind of—it's just kind of hot everywhere. But um, yeah, it's just miserable. We're and we're just gonna for this hour. I know you're a political science professor, but we're probably just gonna talk about the weather the whole time, so that'll be fine. Yeah, it sounds <laughs> good. I've I've lots of thoughts about that. We could go on forever. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, we could talk about the politics of climate change and how that's uh, evolving. I mean, it seems to be that the right is coming to the center a little bit more on that. That is that is a thing. Yeah, well, remains to be seen, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but there, yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see also the way that the population in Wisconsin changes as a result of climate-based migration. I think that that's stands to potentially change the politics of the state, but uh, that might be a let, Let's schedule that for a show in, say, five to ten years. Yeah, five to ten years or 50 years. Yeah, and uh, is Superior when Superior is like the new Milwaukee, everyone will be mo- moved to Superior because that'll be like the most, the, the, the best climate. <laughs> uh, all right. All so- of the uh, truly hip will move to Superior. So as a, a Marquette political science professor, do you have like this is my this is my angle. This is what I really like to delve into my like Tregoski, I He comes on with me on Fridays. He'll be on with me tomorrow morning just to kind of review the we're not going to talk GOB debate debate today because it's just not it's not going to be relevant in an hour. So um, but is there just a, what what is your forte when it comes to uh, politics and political science? So I primarily look at the politics of the relationship between the federal, state, and local governments, uh, intergovernmental relations and federalism, which, you know, is often conflictual. Um, So I look at how those conflicts play out, but I also look at in my work uh, the conditions under which levels of government successfully collaborate with one another to, you know, produce public goods, to do the things that, you know, we, we sort of want government uh, to do so, you know, a lot of my work looks at health policy and the sort of conditions under which uh, governments cooperate to, to expand access to health insurance. Uh, but I also look at, at things that I think most people take for granted in, in politics, like um, official statistics, right? Um, the way that governments cooperate or fail to cooperate uh, to produce the knowledge that, that we just sort of take for granted um, about the world, um, but the the uh, knowledge with the quality of which um, has a huge impact on the kinds of decisions that we make. So I'm working on a book right now uh, about the 2020 census um, and kind of the role that uh, states and cities played in uh, kind of shaping uh, the, the way that the census was conducted. Yeah, because there was a lot of, I don't know if it was a lot, but there was some controversy over, over how that, how we oh, were, yeah. who and how we were counting people, right? Yeah, I mean, part of the, the thing that I show in the book is that on the one hand, you know, because people have, uh, in general, 
greater trust in state and local government um, for one reason or another, that state and local governments were really the primary way that people found out about uh, the census, came to trust, um, that it was okay to, to fill out census forms um, and, you know, submit their information. Uh, but at the same time, I, I sort of show that one of the most important roles that state and local governments played during the census was uh, uh, litigating, uh, going to court to fight um, the introduction of uh, the citizenship question on the 2020 questionnaire, which would have resulted in um, a major undercount, uh, primarily of uh, Spanish-speaking population um, in the United States, uh, uh, including both documented and undocumented uh, immigrants, uh, but also would have resulted in a major shift in um, uh, congressional seats uh, towards Republican-leaning states. When when you talk about your 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 forte is kind of federal, state, local governments either working together. Uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned, I mean that's that had to be a big part of now because because it's just one of those things that sends the decision to the state. Is that is that kind of right up your alley? Yeah, well, I mean you could argue in a way that in the intervening years between the decision Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the 1990s. Um, and the Dobbs decision that states were sort of experimenting and pushing the boundaries of uh, the Roe framework modified by Casey, and that really was the states um, trying to restrict uh, abortion rights under those frameworks that really teed up the Dobbs decision. So, I mean, obviously Dobbs made um, abortion an even more robust kind of state issue and, and kind of further um, balkanized. Uh, the states. But I, I think that one of the ways that I see it is that the states were, for you know, the better part of two decades, tinkering around the edges in ways that were intended to tee up the Dobbs case. Oh, yeah, I have I have a theory. I, I'll get to I have two theories now for you. I, I've I put this in uh, 16 font on my page so I can give you this theory okay. uh, that relates to Roe v. Wade. But what about like it, it also in that same realm, sports gambling, right? Some years ago, the federal government said states do whatever you want with sports gambling. Um, these are all kind of funny because like Wisconsin never never initiates any of these things. I think there was a little bit with sports gambling, Governor Evers and working with uh, some of the casinos, but I, I feel like that's it's just like very minimal. And then like legalized marijuana, that's that, that seems like another state issue that uh, like federally we could just pass that at this point. I feel like. Yeah, I would argue that, like, you know, while states are often seen as, um, they're, they're, they're not levels of government people tend to pay a lot of attention to, although that, you know, that could be changing, hopefully it's changing. Um, I think that some of the most important issues in the American political economy um, really run right through uh, state capitals. And, and, and you said it there, right? Um, uh, everything from uh, medical marijuana to to abortion to uh, what you're allowed to bet on and and how um, to uh, the conditions under which uh, we work and the rights we have as workers. I mean, all of those things run right through state capitals. And so I think, as obscure uh, and sort of um, 
uh, uh, tucked away as state politics can be. I think it's really central um, to understanding what's going on. Um, and that, and that in a way, um, it's not as if national politics and certainly presidential politics aren't important, but um, when it comes to the sort of day-to-day uh, decisions that affect who really rules, um, I, I think that states are, are pretty significant. Yeah, just uh, we got to go to break here, but I'll throw this number at you. Uh, THC sales in Minnesota in July, $6 million. That means the state brought in $600,000 in taxes from that. Uh, in one month, <laughs> so like, and talk- a good chunk of it from Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, right. Like right here in the cross. All right, we got to take a break. We're going to continue with Marquette political science professor Dr. Philip Rocco when we come back. All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM. I'm Rick Solom on the phone with me this hour. Marquette political science professor Dr. Philip Rocco hanging out. If you have any questions, we're not doing GOP debate because it's going to happen in an hour. Are you, are, but first, Phil, are you, are you down? Are you, are you, is it popcorn and, and beer tonight when you watch this thing? Or are you just like, eh? Um, I have to go and cover it uh, with local TV. So oh. I don't really, you know, as a political scientist in Milwaukee, when the RNC, uh, you know, debate is here, you don't really get a choice. You're sort of summoned uh, to do it. So, oh yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, so you're going to bounce from here and go right to there, huh? Yeah. Or have you already camped out? I feel like traffic will be awful. I I'm not sure. Yeah, it'll probably be very bad, but who knows? <laughs> All right, we'll see. All right, so we we were talking about Ro- the Roe v. Wade decision, and and it, it it comes from a state passing a law that directly opposes Roe v. Wade. Okay, so here's my theory on this: Why don't why doesn't a a blue state so a Democratic-run state, pass a law that directly opposes Citizens United and therefore sends Citizens United to the Supreme Court in a way that we know like the Supreme Court's not going to rule in favor of this, but this would be some cachet for whatever state. Look what we're doing. We're trying to, like nobody in the nation likes Citizens United except like the uber-rich, I would assume. But at least the state can say, hey, look, we're trying to pass a law that opposes Citizens United and then you can point to the Supreme Court when they uphold it and just go, see, right-wing Supreme Court. I don't know. It's just like one of those po- political games in my head that I feel like no blue state is doing. Well, I mean, I, I think there are a number of opportunities to use lawsuits as a way of um, engaging in you know political battles. And the, the question you have to ask, right, is what kind of conflict does it allow you to uh, to have, and is it worth it? And especially, is it worth it when there are a lot of other, you know, um, kind of issues, all, you know, on, on the table that actually have to be fought out sort of directly, sometimes in state court, right? And that's the, um, I think, the kind of conundrum, and especially when, you know, litigation resources are quite, uh, uh, quite limited. But I, I, you know, I don't doubt that... Uh, the, you know, there's something to be said for uh, kind of reintroducing that issue uh, in, in a context where people are talking increasingly about um, sort of the, the politics of uh, speech acts and things like that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it maybe doesn't surprise me, especially given the uh, <laughs> current landscape, not just of the, the Supreme Court, but of the federal courts, you know, in general, which not necessarily uh, 
not necessarily friendly to, to you know, um, uh, going back on on um, on uh, uh, Citizens United, but you know, it doesn't mean that there aren't uh, other other ways of uh, trying to, to to contend with that. Yeah. So, you, so you're saying there's not enough money for the lawsuit? I feel like we're throwing money around everywhere. We've I, the the Supreme oh. Court race was forty billion dollars. Somebody's got this money, <laughs> but but I suppose they don't I, want I, to use this money to overturn Citizens United. Well, I think the point is there's a lot of um, let me put it this way: there's a lot of litigation uh, to be done, right? And um, you know, I, I think you know I'm not a um, not a uh, Federal campaign law expert by any means. Yeah. Um, but the uh, and and I you know who's to say that there aren't legal developments uh, in the works? I mean, probably somebody has styled a brief somewhere. Uh, we just don't know about it. Uh, would be my guess. Uh, so, but you know, I, I think the um, you know the other uh, aspect of this, which is is that like you know to, to some extent, I think incumbents of both parties have in a way habituated themselves to the regime of, um, uh, of, uh, citizens United. And they've just gotten really good at raising, uh, raising money. And, you know, it's, uh, I, I think, um, you know, one thing that happens after a major legal change is that there is some amount of adaptation, right? And so, you know, there's no doubt, crusading uh, states out there, but I think a, a large number of uh, organizations just um, accommodate themselves to the new regime. We're speaking with Dr. Philip Rocco. He's a Marquette political science professor. He's been doing that for seven years. Now, is your whole career seven years at Marquette, or is this you've been at Marquette for seven years? Uh, I've been at Marquette for seven years. I was at the University of Pittsburgh before that. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I want to talk about the shared revenue plan that passed. Uh, this is almost old news, but um, we're, we're going to start seeing the effects of this. Uh, for, what what did you see that was very interesting about when the state, when when the governor of Wisconsin and the, the state legislature, who doesn't often agree on pretty much anything, uh, comes together on a plan? They, they pulled that out of the budget to do that plan separately, too, which I thought was interesting. Comes together on a plan and, and gets it done. They actually... Uh, it, what, did it just come to the desperation of mis- municipalities pleading to help to help us? You know, when where where the legislature goes, okay, we can do this because the governor isn't up for re-election for four years. <laughs> well, I think it's important to think about the context of this decision. So, you know, the state had been uh, ignoring. Uh, an increasingly dire situation in local governments around uh, around the state for for decades, right? So um, the the old arrangement is over a hundred years old. Uh, at this point, was that uh, the state preempts local governments from most sources of taxation, with the exception of property, um, and doesn't allow them to access those sources. And the what it gives local governments a return is a cut of state revenues, right, mix of uh, income and sales uh, tax revenues. And, you know, that, the formula for allocating that had basically been frozen in place, um, had been based on a variety of things, including um, local 
uh, local population, but also um, local revenue uh, conditions. So there's some amount of redistribution there. Um, but the uh, but it had really kind of fallen by the wayside, hadn't been updated in years. And so, you know, if you're, if you're to go back and actually tally what local governments around the state missed out on, right, we're talking billions and billions of dollars, um, th- th- simply because the state left the formula to rot yeah, after uh, decades. Yeah, after um, after you know, 30, so, 30 years, the funding that municipalities got, while inflation continued to rise, obviously inflation always rises, um, the 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 funding for municipalities actually went down <laughs> over thirty years. So, like, they right. were getting less money now than they were thirty years ago. Right, and and you know the important uh, feature of this, right, is that um, it's not as if I think a lot of the you know kind of arguments that were made um, against um, that Republicans had made for years uh, against updating the formula were really that um, the local local governments were, were profligate. And so by, you know, giving this money uh, to them, you would be somehow incentivizing bad behavior, which completely ignores the fact that local governments are not allowed to use most sources of revenue. The state controls it. The, the state holds uh, a lot of the cards. Mm-hmm. And so local governments are not masters of their own fate, right? There's a, there's a legal doctrine called Dillon's Rule that basically says that local governments are the creatures of the state and are, you know, can be um, uh, dominated by them unless the state constitution says otherwise. And so the, um, you know, so, so essentially local governments were in a condition of, of desperation. Milwaukee was on the verge of a, um, you know, uh, uh, a huge uh, funding gap and potentially could have led to a municipal bankruptcy, um, you know, uh, on the order of, of Detroit. Um, and so, so, and essentially Republicans waited until the very last possible moment to have these negotiations after Milwaukee had already agreed to host the RNC um, as sort of an initial kind of uh, foray into that bargaining environment. Um, and as a result, we're really able to set the terms and deal. So there's this idea that, like, local governments were out there, like, bargaining with the state, which is really sort of ridiculous. The state held the cards here. Yeah. Local governments postured, um, but they really sold out um, in a lot of ways. And, and a couple things that are really important to note. They changed the formula, so is now still based on population, but smaller municipalities. Get uh, have a larger multiplier, which means that in percentage terms, some of the smallest municipalities in the state got the largest bump. We're talking about an increase of funding on the order, in some cases, of about five thousand uh, percent. Right. Milwaukee and Milwaukee County got the lowest uh, increases of any county or any municipality in the state. Um, so that was sort of one um, aspect of it. And then the shared revenue. Um, uh, part of the bill was festooned with a bunch of new restrictions. So, in fact, whereas virtually all of shared revenue in the past had been general purpose, meaning that this, this is basically the states turning back revenues to local governments that were theirs to begin with, um, in, in the deal that passed a few months ago, um, uh, the purposes of those revenues were, were restricted and a number of uh, additional restrictions 
uh, and regulations on how local governments could use the money were, were imposed, including a bunch of restrictions that applied only to Milwaukee and probably in violation of the state constitution's home rule uh, provision. Yeah, wh- um, why? Why? Uh, why is that? Why? Why? Well, I got I, you know we got to take a break, so we'll come back and and I'll ask why why yeah, the state sure. was going after Milwaukee. We'll be back in a minute. All right, welcome back to Lacrosse Talk PM six zero eight seven eight five seven nine one four is the text line if you want to get in here. Um, only people complaining about the FM station not working. I'm I don't know if it's not working. I'm sorry, I don't have the radio in here. Um, but that was earlier today. So, um, all right, Dr. Philip Rocco, he is a professor at Marquette University, a political science professor. Uh, we were talking about the revenue sharing thing. Um, revenue sharing, like, great. <laughs> I think you put it put it pretty good on uh, over the break, Phil, is that uh, municipalities were getting nothing. And then when you give them crumbs, they'll take it because it seems like, you know, what a cook, a whole cookie. So at that at that point, they'll they'll take any deal because there are some just kind of like bad apples in that. Uh, there's too many food analogies going on, but there's just some kind of like bad parts of that deal. Yeah, and I think the, the optimists among local officials, you know, will we'll take the money. It's not ideal, but in a take it or leave it offer, what exactly are we going to do? We don't have any. Leverage. It's not like we're going to, you know, march on Madison and you know shut down the Capitol or anything. That that certainly isn't how sort of normal lobbying is is, is you know is going to work on the thing. And I think the hope was, look, we'll you know we'll we'll take a slightly in some in some cases uh, much you know much uh, uh, weaker deal than we might have imagined. I mean, Evers legislation included um, far more for for all municipalities. Um, than uh, they would have received under, uh, or they, they did receive under the Republican bill. Um, but the uh, but the thought was, you know, to take it or leave it offer, we have to take what's on the table. And when it comes to the onerous regulations, we'll sort of, um, you know, hope that we can find some flexibilities in the language uh, or, uh, you know, fight them um, in court. Although that sort of is contingent on corporate counsel um, you know, for municipalities and counties wanting to go to mat, the mat for this, you know, which is not necessarily a foregone conclusion, but it's something that, you know, I, you know, potentially with, with a different uh, Supreme Court, you might imagine uh, uh, there being some energy uh, for doing, and certainly we're seeing some inklings of that in Milwaukee. So that, that's one thing where I would say watch that space. Uh, I think there might be some, some interesting litigation on – um, the, the the law of state local relations in in Wisconsin. Yeah, if if we go to court over certain aspects of that shared revenue deal, does it blow up the whole deal, or do they axe? Do they use no. the veto pen and cross that part of the deal off, and the rest of the deal is sound? Yes, I think that there there's some severability in those provisions. Okay, not uh, you know all tied together, and I think especially with some of the, the regulatory provisions that apply specifically to uh, Milwaukee. That really flies in the face of a lot of jurisprudence uh, over the last, you know, 30 uh, years or so that basically says, look, the state can't reach in and single out one municipality for um, special treatment. Right? right? That's not a statewide. Um, that's not a statewide issue. You're going in and you're meddling with um, the affairs of a home rule municipality. Yeah, that's weird. It is weird. 
Um, okay, so let's let's move on a little bit. I want to I want to talk I, I want to talk about a couple of things, and just in in a way that you just kind of explain it to me. So there's a special session next month. Uh, UW system funding, I think, is part of that workforce. Is is part of that conversation? I can't I can't tell you specifically how it is part of that conversation off the top of my head. But then the the big thing is the childcare, just subsidizing the childcare industry in the state because uh, we pulled the rug out from under them, and obviously th- th- that's a big deal. Why is something like that so controversial, so political? I mean, we're we're right after an election, so it's not even like you want to give Evers or the legislature a win. That's that's way out unless you want to count this like um, potential supreme, you know, with the potential elections coming up next year. But I don't know why is something so basic like childcare funding political all of a sudden in Wisconsin. Well, I think you know the example I like to use, and I think childcare is a good one. Uh, but the other thing I would say is is uh, reforms that would improve the quality of mental health care um, in Wisconsin in. You know, the year that uh, Evers said was, you know, like the year of mental health, um, you just saw billions uh, of dollars um, kind of like left on the table um, uh, that, uh, you know, could have gone to things like, you know, raising provider reimbursement rates, um, which are, you know, sorely lacking, which leads to an under-provision of mental health care, um, uh, and a number of additional provisions to sort of like build out the facilities so that we don't have to send people far away from where they live um, to uh, large mental health institutions when they need uh, care during emergencies. So, and what, um, is what you're saying deeper, is is what you're saying is was there federal money on the table for Wisconsin to to grab to to boost the mental health of the state and we didn't grab it. There would have been federal money, um, federal matching dollars, but you know, in Eber's budget, there were uh, millions and millions of dollars uh, there for um, uh, right for you know enhancing mental health care. And you know, while I will say there were certain things where it's like it was not surprising, like it's not surprising that in a uh, budget where you have a Republican state legislature that in Wisconsin that they're not going to go for legalizing marijuana, they're not going to want to you know, expand Medicaid, that at this point has sort of become routine in Wisconsin. But the, the mental health care provisions were really, like, not super – not a lot of ideological arguments one could make about them. Um, it's, it's stuff that really affects rural communities as well as urban ones. I mean, it was pretty, pretty basic, and, you know, they were just sort of summarily gutted in the Joint Finance Committee without a word of explanation. Okay, but without a word of, of clear explanation, and 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 the thing I think that's interesting, right, is the question you have to ask is like why these are like not controversial things. The childcare thing is you know has a lot of support on on sort of both sides of um, the political aisle, and you know in talking to some advocates about this, you know I said you know what do you wish would have gone you know differently, and one thing I heard from folks was that they're like well I wish that. Ironically, I wish that Evers wouldn't have got out in front of these issues. I wish that he would have stayed silent and not made them part of his state of the state and his agenda, because once Evers says it, once it becomes a proposal that he makes, it immediately goes into the, um, you know, dustbin. Crapper. Uh, where Republicans, <laughs> they can't let 
him win on anything. And so there's almost a, a kind of perverse thing, which is like the sometimes the best way to deal with an issue is to not lead on it. But, of course, that creates risks um, as well, and that means ignoring an important issue. So it's not really, you know, it, it's, to me, it's all sort of indicators of a very, very sick um, and I think sort of diseased uh, uh, demo- set of democratic institutions in this state. Yeah, Evers can't get in front of something because then he takes the messaging and then pl- – well, I, I've said this a couple of different ways. Uh, Evers got in front of the Brewer Stadium funding, and I think that that caused a poison pill where now – because I think Republicans wanted to to you know sidle up to the Brewer's owner and go, hey, look, at we're going to give you funding, and then, damn it, Evers got it. And then when the GOP convention comes here next year, right, to Milwaukee, Evers got in front of that and said, we're going to change the bar time to, like, what, 4 a.m. or whatever – kind of giving a win to, you know, your area there, Milwaukee, and I, the Tavern League, and I think Republicans were like, what? You're doing, we wanted to do that so that we could take credit for it. So, uh, like, Evers is on top of this stuff. Well, that's an interesting thing that you say is, like, Evers is so on top of this stuff that it actually hurts the state because he's because he's putting out messaging that's positive. Look what we want to do, and then, oh, well, then we're not going to do it out of spite. Yeah, and I think you know, in in a, and I, you know, and it's it's understandable why he does that, right? Because in most contexts, in most governing contexts, when you propose something, the fact that you have proposed it is not on its own going to be the death knell. Usually, it has something to do with the content of the thing, or who's lobbying for it, or whether or not there's enough, whether there's enough political will there right, whether or not somebody's beating down um, the door to, to get something done. But in Wisconsin, it doesn't work like that. And I think that when you look at what's going to happen with the special session, it's going to be completely anticlimactic. What is going to happen is exactly what happens every single time. There's a special session called by the governor, which is they gavel in and gavel out in about one minute. Yeah. No, yeah, and it's weird because some of those are controversial. Some of those special sessions, there's 13. I read there was 13. I thought it was 11, um, but I've read maybe I missed two. But they've gaveled in and out of at least at least 11, maybe 13 of these special sessions because Evers calls it, and we don't want to give him a win for that. Um, yeah, but when you say that it's it's funny because they just if Evers brings it up first, then they don't want to they don't want to do it. I was thinking like you know with childcare, is it is it because of gerrymandering and they don't have to. You know, certain districts don't even have to worry about that. Or is it like they want to negotiate a flat tax? They got this in their pocket. So if you want that, then we still have this in our pocket. We want the flat tax, and we're going to have to negotiate. I thought maybe there was a negotiating tactic, but we're not even seeing any communication. I mean, you know, the thing is, you would think that if that was a – if there was a – if bargaining were happening, right, usually in bargaining you make the quid pro quo explicit. Right. In this case, uh, you know, there was uh, a flat tax proposed, um, but uh, you know, Evers uh, didn't uh, didn't go for it. Um, and but there was not even a sense that like that was on offer as, as part of a political uh, bargain. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I don't. Um, we're we're not in a state where those sort of uh, uh, conversation, you know. Sort of tectonic tectonics of politics um, kind of apply because, uh, it, and it's not just I think gerrymandering. I think it is that after so many years, 
of having a legislature where the power of one party is locked in, that has second-order effects, uh, which is that you just, in the way that you govern, you, you realize that you really don't have to give an explanation or a rationale for anything. You never have to justify yourself to anybody. Um, and so the whole art of bargaining, um, such as it is, uh, gives way to this. Um, and, and which is why the shared revenue thing is sort of like an, ex- I guess you could say it's an exception to um, the rule, but I think part of the um, exception is that uh, you had a, a really potentially uh, devastating thing that was on the horizon, and there were some, um, some gain, real concrete gains to be extracted. Well, and you could point to when cities are laying off police officers, then Republicans have to get involved because they're like, oh, no, police officers – then we have to do something. But if it's like school teachers, well, school teachers would be a little bit different. But if it was like parks and rec coordinators, then we would have never seen a shared revenue deal. If we're, if we're, if we're selling parks and laying off uh, parks and rec people, then it wouldn't have mattered. But we were laying off fire, fire. We, we were at the, the, the point where we would have to lay off police and fire department staff. Well, I mean, I, you know, I would say don't underestimate um, the value that, some governing officials place in the privatization of public services, right? There's a million dollar uh, or so fund um, in the uh, shared revenue uh, provision, uh, shared revenue bill uh, that's specifically uh, geared to allow uh, governments to experiment with privatization schemes. And, and you got to ask yourself sort of like, why, um, why is that in there? Why is that, you know, why for the most part is, you know, is it uh, not necessarily, you know, why do govern, uh, governing officials kind of ignore this problem um, going on in, in, in municipalities and counties for years? And I think the reason why is that uh, public employees, uh, Republicans see them as a threat because they are largely speaking uh, unionized. Uh, they you know, uh, they see local governments as a threat for that reason. Um, they also see, I think, um, in an era where the rate of profit, uh, the rate of return on investment from um, productivity is falling and governments have a large amount of fixed assets, I think there are a lot of people who look at governments, especially local governments, fixed assets and say, uh, it's time to eat, right? And, um I think that we probably haven't seen uh, the last of that. We're speaking with Dr. Philip Marco, political science professor at Marquette University. Okay, I, I know you, you want to get to the, the debate, but I, I, real quick, one, a couple minutes here left. Uh, one last question. The, so the debate is in Milwaukee. Obviously, the national, the GOP National Convention is in Milwaukee next year. The Democrats are putting their national convention in Chicago, so it's right next door because they, they can't put it in Milwaukee, too. That'd be weird. Um Obviously, Wisconsin's very important. Tammy Baldwin is on the ballot. Ron Johnson just got reelected in a in a in a state where what fifteen of the past what is it fourteen of the past seventeen statewide elections went to Democrats, something like that. Um, does do does anyone know what Wisconsin is? I mean, I understand it's a it's it's a purple state, right? But like, man, there's everyone's putting a lot of eggs in this basket, and and it seems pretty like like. It's to me part of it seems like it's where very up in the air, 
just because of the Ron Johnson factor, but the rest of it seems like, you know, the state's pretty blue. I think that um, if you look at the population trends, I mean, I think a lot depends on what happens in the next few years, uh, population-wise. I think that the growth of Dane County probably, uh, you know, suggests that it's, it's going to be, you know, maybe a tougher fight uh, for Republicans here than it was, say, in 2016, right? I mean, it's, it's, it is, states are not static political entities, even though in the media, when we describe them, we tend to give them this, we paint them with this really broad brush, which is like, well, Wisconsin's a swing state, right? It's, it's, a, it's a purple state. But what that, um, I think, uh, misses is that state populations are really uh, dynamic. They're changing. And uh, even internally uh, in states, there, there's migration in ways that can really reshape um, state politics. And I would say that when people give me the thumbnail sketch um, uh, uh, picture of a state like Wisconsin, I'm, I'm almost inclined uh, to disbelieve it because I know how much dynamism there is um, in the underlying population trend. So, yeah, I wouldn't, you know, purple state might be a bit of an oversimplification. I think there are a lot of reasons to believe that things are trending blue, but, but you know, that could change. So I, you know, uh, we, well, we shall see. And it, you, you also, you, you make everyone red or blue from the get-go, but like, I feel like maybe this presidential election might just kind of like a lot of people went from voting for Obama to not voting for Hillary, you know, like the, exactly. the candidates on, uh, you know, on the, the stage coming up in 2024 are a little, just a little bit off to me. Well, part of this is it's an artifact of the way that we, you know, when we sample people for uh, polls, um, we're sampling uh, people who are registered voters, and, and they're likely to uh, report themselves as being likely to, to vote in, in the upcoming election. But the thing that you don't get to do is you do not get to sample who actually shows up on Election Day. Mm-hmm. And that they're quite different um, than the population um, itself. And, and so, you know, when you're looking at is this a blue or red state or a purple state, you know, it really matters what election you're looking at and who ends, who ends up showing up. These are not um, even merely demographic um, well, uh, characteristics. Or beyond, also about political mobilization. Or beyond that, who's on the ballot that's going to motivate me to go to the polls. Yeah, absolutely. Which might be interesting because Tammy Baldwin might motivate people to go to the polls since, since the Republicans don't really have an opponent against her. I might be motivated to go vote for Tammy Baldwin. And then, oh, yeah, I guess Joe Biden's on this ballot as well. <laughs> Where if she wasn't there, that that I, I might hurt Wisconsin. To say whether or not that effect exists, but uh, <laughs> but you know, but I guess the the, the bigger point is that um, electorates um, are not static uh, organisms. Yeah, that's Dr. Philip Rocco, political science professor at Marquette University. All right, I'm going to let you go so you can go to your debate. Have fun. Thanks a lot for joining me, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Take care. <laughs> All right. All right, we got to take a break. All right, that's going to wrap it up for a Wednesday. I'll be back here in the morning. Dr. Anthony Chagoski, political science professor at UWL, will be here to uh, just recap the GOP debate.